ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. These days, we're all investors, trying to be smart with our money despite our worst impulses. But at iShares, we believe that deep down inside of every investor is a better investor. One that's just waiting to be let out. Explore iShares ETFs and insights and let your best investor out. Visit iShares.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week in studio, live and in person, will be Alex Morris, President and Chief Investment Officer of FM Investments, who has one of the more unique ETF launches this year. And actually, it's a uh, suite of ETFs. It's called the U.S. Benchmark Series. Uh, these are single security ETFs holding each of the benchmark U.S. Treasuries. So, for example... They offer the U.S. Treasury 10-Year Note ETF, ticker U10, U-T-E-N, which holds on-the-run 10-year Treasury notes. So that means the most recently issued notes. And we're going to go in-depth on the potential benefits of these ETFs, uh, including how they compare to, uh, quote-unquote, regular Treasury ETFs, or even define maturity Treasury ETFs. And then we'll also discuss the broader treasury market and what Alex is seeing in uh, fixed income overall. Obviously, it's been a harrowing year with interest rates skyrocketing. We saw more of that last week after that hot inflation number. So we'll get into uh, that as well. Also joining me this week will be Mark Newman, founder and chief investment officer of Constrained Capital. He's going to spotlight the ESG Orphans ETF, ticker ORFN, O-R-F-N. This seeks to hold the stocks of companies and sectors that have been orphaned by ESG-centric funds. So sectors that have been banished by ESG funds. And I'll tell you now, you might not find a more passionate person on the topic of ESG than Mark. Let's just say He's not the uh, biggest fan, so this should be a very interesting conversation on what continues to be a hot topic of debate. Now, one of the orphan sectors held in that ETF is fossil fuel energy. So think integrated oil, oil and gas production, refining, coal, you name it. 
which that ties in perfectly to my first guest this week. I have on the line with me right now a brand new voice from Vetify, Stacy Morris, who is head of energy research there. And I'm going to let you tell or I'm going to let her tell you about her extensive background. But uh, she is absolutely going to be our resident energy and energy ETF expert moving forward. So let's chat with Stacy now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. 2% of demand versus 1% of demand is, is a pretty big shift. Energy companies have changed a lot. You know, they're generating significant free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. They're offering attractive dividends. Stacy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. It's great to be with you. I've got to tell you, I'm so glad to have you here because I feel like my coverage of the energy space has uh, been a bit lacking on this podcast. And of course, <laughs> energy is the top performing sector this year, which we can certainly talk about. So this is going to work out very well for listeners, uh, I, I think. So again, very glad to have you here. And uh, look, as I alluded to uh, at the top, I do think a good starting point, since you haven't been on the podcast before, would be to have you just offer a little bit of background on yourself, perhaps how you got involved in the energy space, and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your current role at Vetify. Sure. So, as you mentioned, I'm the head of energy research at Vetify. Um, I joined what was then Alarian actually five years ago, earlier this month. But I spent my entire career working in finance and oil and gas and, and working in Texas doing that. Um, so I started out on the sales side at Raymond James in Houston, covering the majors and refiners, and spent uh, four years after that leading investor relations for an oil refiner before I moved over to you know, Vetify. But uh, in my current role here at Vetify, I spent a lot of my time supporting the Alarian Energy Infrastructure Index Suite, um, and I'm really focused on you know, midstream corporations and MLPs and those constituents in our indexes. Okay, so a lot I want to get to, what I thought we might do is first start on the ETF side of the equation, and then we can certainly broaden out and discuss what's been going on in energy overall this year. And so right now, I, I was looking, I show nearly 60 energy-related ETFs, and obviously there are a lot of different ways that you can classify these, but I show 60 ETFs in the broad energy category. That's led, of course, by XLE, the Energy Select Sector Spider ETF. Again, I'd love to have you start maybe by just giving a quick tour of the energy ETF space overall. Like, how do you bucketize this category, uh, you know, put these in different segments? Because there are just so many different ways you can get energy exposure. That's right, Nate. I mean, there's a lot of different options out there. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of people just default to XLE. Um, and that's maybe kind of the the default option if anyone's trying to get energy exposure. But, you know, with 60 or so ETFs out there, um, you can get a lot more nuance than that if you would like to. Um, and so the way I would kind of divide the sector is by looking at, you know, how these companies make money and, you know, how they're organized into different subsectors from an ETF perspective. So, you know, for example, if you're really bullish on commodity prices, then you're going to want an ETF that focuses on oil and gas producers like XOP. Um, you know, you're going to want to own those companies that are the ones actually producing oil and natural gas. Um, if you're, you know, really interested in the oil field services sector and see, you know, margins growing there and you're bullish on that sector, then you're going to want something like OIH, which focuses on oil field services companies. Um, 
you know, if you're more interested in defensive energy exposure, then you're probably going to be more interested in midstream or energy infrastructure. Um, if you're looking for income from the energy space, then you're going to be more interested in the ETF that predominantly owns MLPs, um, like the Alarian MLP ETF, you know, AMLP, which Vetify provides the underlying index for. Um, even if you're you know more interested in natural gas, for example, you know, there's uh, First Trust has a natural gas ETF, ticker FCG. So, there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of play the space. Typically, if you're you know getting into broad energy and looking past XLE, then it's going to be based more on subsector, so oil and gas producers or exploration and production companies, oil field service names, or midstream energy infrastructure. You know, there's a number of options in those different categories. So, all that to say, you can get a lot more tailored with your energy exposure if you would like to do that. What do you think about the more what I'll call pure play energy ETF? So something like UNG, the uh, United States Natural Gas Fund, or USO, the uh, oil version. Do you lump those in with the equity ETFs, or do you have those as a second bu- uh, separate bucket altogether? Yeah, so I would put them in a separate bucket altogether. You know, I would argue that those are commodity ETFs, and they come with their own nuances and risks. Um, to me, they're just a more direct way to express a commodity view. And so the use case for those is going to be different than the use case for an ETF of energy equities. Okay. And then what about uh, global versus U.S. exposure? Do, do you segment that differently? You know, it's interesting because obviously in the energy space, a lot of the companies that you have, even U.S.-based companies, clearly they're multinational companies. Does that make a difference? Or, uh, again, do you lump these all together? How do you think about global versus U.S. exposure? Yeah, so there are you know, some ETFs that kind of include either U.S. or global in their names, and so they try to provide that differentiation. But you know, to your point, um, even U.S. companies have global exposure. I mean, Exxon has assets in Russia, for example. Um, Chevron, Occidental, Apache. You know, these are all large multinational companies. So it can be difficult difficult to avoid international exposure if that's what someone's trying to do. You know, maybe they're worried about geopolitical risks in certain areas, or they're worried about governments putting in windfall taxes, those sorts of things. Um, so it can be really hard to avoid international exposure if that's what you're trying to do. But one way that you could actually do that and get energy exposure is to own the midstream space. You know, almost all MLP assets are in the U.S. Um, broader midstream funds are typically owning you know, companies that are in the U.S. and Canada. So actually, midstream could be one way to kind of get energy exposure and avoid international. Um, but if you are looking for global exposure, you know, iShares has a global energy producers ETF, uh, ticker FILL, F-I-L-L. Um, but that casts a very wide net of energy producers. So you're not just getting oil and gas producers, but you're also getting you know, coal producers, for example. So um, you, you have to kind of see, uh, look under the hood, as you will, you know, to see what's in these actual ETFs and the actual exposure you're getting if you're trying to avoid international or trying to get international exposure. It's so funny that you uh, said look under the hood. I was just going to say, I, as you were going through that, I thought of your colleague Todd Rosenbluth, which that's absolutely <laughs> his uh, his catchphrase or tagline. And, it, you know, as we're going through this here, I, and it's like any other uh, ETF uh, segment, you have to look under the hood. But, you know, I was looking at some of the options this morning. We touched on XLE. You mentioned uh XOP, you mentioned OIH, AMLP. I mean, Vanguard has an energy ETF, ticker VDE. iShares has a U.S. energy ETF, IYE. 
We saw a Strive recently come out with a product, a, a U.S. energy ETF drill. Um, iShares has a global energy ETF, XYC. They're equal weighted versions from somebody like uh, Invesco. So clearly a lot of options out there. Um, okay, let's uh, get into the current energy markets. And last week, okay, I tweeted out a chart showing that XLE has outperformed the tech and communication services sector spiders by over 80% this year, 80%. And that gap has actually come down a tad from where it was back in June. Uh, but clearly energy has been the top performing sector this year. And as I thought about this, my guess is that many investors uh, attribute that to the Russia-Ukraine war and how that's impacted supply and some of the other geopolitical ramifications of that, right? Just like the relationship with Russia and, and Saudi Arabia and those sorts of things. Is it that simple in terms of the, the main driver of, of oil and, and, and energy this year, or is there more going on here? Well, I think there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, keep in mind, energy was also the best performing sector last year, and that was you know clearly before Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, and even when we saw oil prices, you know, fall in September to levels uh, that were below, you know, pre-invasion levels, energy was still the best performing sector. And energy stocks held up pretty well, even as we saw, you know, four straight months of oil price declines from, you know, June through, you know, to the beginning of October. So uh, I think there's a lot of factors at play here, but there's just a couple things that I would point out. You know, for one, energy was being down for many years. Um, so this space had a lot of ground to recover as we started to see commodities improve coming out of the pandemic. Um, so it's kind of been a, a beaten down, unloved sector, and, and we're starting to see that, uh, you know, certainly reverse. Um, another point here is that energy does well in periods of high inflation. Energy companies are arguably less sensitive to rising interest rates. So, you know, to the point of your chart, there's also kind of this value versus growth element here as well. Um, and then I think, you know, you have to give energy management teams some credit. You know, these companies are executing. Um, they're delivering on free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. Um, they're increasing their dividends or deploying variable dividends. And, you know, granted, all of that is a lot easier when oil prices and natural gas prices are higher. Um, but I think this space has really, you know, taken its medicine, learned its lesson, and it's much more investable now. And companies are, are executing and delivering um, and that deserves some credit, too. So I think, you know, all of that is helping energy beyond just what's happened with Russia and the jump in commodity prices that we've seen. Can you talk a little bit more about that point that companies are executing better now and, and perhaps they've learned their lesson? I, I mean, look, obviously, a lot of investors own energy through uh, broad index funds. And I was looking this morning, so energy now comprises over 5% of the S&P 500. I think as recently as 2020, it was only around 2% of the index. Mm -hmm. And I feel like energy as a whole was uh, really in the doldrums for the better part of the last decade or so. So can you maybe talk about the overall ride for energy during the past de uh, decade plus? I mean, you know, I know we could do a full hour long podcast on this uh, on its own, but what were some of the key issues here performance wise and with companies executing and, and, and what happened? I'm Look, I'll give you one other stat here. So uh, the S&P 500 was up nearly 360% over the 10 years ended 2021, XLE was up 14%. So 360% to 14%. What was going on? <laughs> yeah, um, there's been a lot going on. But, 
Yeah, to your point, you know, if you go back to mid-2008, energy was just over 16% of the S&P 500. And then, you know, from then, it was generally around, you know, 10 to 12% until 2014. Um, and, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, we saw, you know, strength in commodity prices. And then we also started to see kind of the the growth in U.S. energy production and the shale revolution really start coming about. Um, so from 2014, you saw this steady decline in energies waiting in the S&P 500 as oil prices started to fall. Um, essentially, the U.S. was producing so much that it was putting downward pressure on prices. And then also in November of 2014, OPEC decided it was going to put U.S. shale out of business and fight for market share. So they started to overproduce. So we got into this period of very low prices for oil, with oil ultimately bottoming around you know, $26 per barrel in February of 2016. Um, but through this period and you know, from 2016, you saw energy's waiting continue to decline. And essentially what companies were doing is they were still growing um, and producing a lot of oil and natural gas because they were good at it, um, but they weren't being very good stewards of capital. So you know, arguably these companies were, you know, more or less destroying value in the name of growing production. Um, and so investors got fed up with that and energy was in the penalty box for a long, long time. Um, and even heading into the pandemic, you know, in October 2020, uh, energy was just 2% in the S&P 500 to your point. So that was kind of right before we started to see the improvement in energy uh, initially on, you know, vaccine news in November of 2020. But, you know, from this time and kind of taking its medicine and learning its lesson, the space has become a lot more investable. Companies are focused on capital discipline. They're not growing for growth's sake anymore. Um, and they're re- making money and returning it to investors, which is what investors have wanted. So now, you know, in 2022, energy is up to over 5% of the S&P 500, and you can't afford to ignore this space anymore, um, given, you know, it's waiting in the index, but also that it's been a strong performer. So, um, a lot has changed here. You know, in the past, you could just ignore it. It was 2%. You were better off just buying tech names. Um, but now, you know, with the strength and performance and that greater weight, people really have to pay attention to this space again. And so I think investors that were probably sidelined have had to arguably, you know, come back and start looking at the space again and figuring out how they want to get exposure to this space. Okay, so to your point that you, you can no longer ignore this space, it has become more investable. As you look moving forward, I know we have earnings season about to kick off for energy companies. We're obviously uh, entering the the important winter period where oil and natural gas are, are typically in high demand. Give us your quick outlook on the space moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of earnings season, the third quarter probably isn't going to be the blockbuster that the second quarter was because we saw, you know, some weakness in oil prices. Um, a decline in refining margins from what were, you know, outstandingly high levels, um, some weakness in chemicals, but it's still going to be, you know, a very strong quarter by recent standards. Um, and I think, you know, what's important about earnings season is that it's an opportunity for companies to kind of highlight that execution on capital discipline, capital discipline and free cash flow and how they're returning cash to investors. Um, in terms of my outlook, you know, I think what we've learned this month is that OPEC Plus is, you know, clearly willing to defend a floor in oil prices around $90 per barrel Brent, um, even at a very high political cost. So I think, you know, the commodities are going to probably still be volatile, particularly oil, but there's some sort of floor there um, for oil. And as an energy investor, I think that gives you a lot of confidence. 
Um, for natural gas, you know, we've seen some weakness here the last several weeks, but as we get into winter, to your point, I think there's an upside bias in prices. And you know, even around $6 today, natural gas prices in the U.S. are much higher than they've been for much of the last decade where they were just trading between 2 and $4. So you know, I think we're in a, a situation where the commodities are, are going to be volatile, but they're generally going to be higher than they've been. And that's going to be supportive for the energy space. And with inflation and rising interest rates, you know, I think energy is still a good place that you would want to be in this type of market. One thing I'm curious about, obviously, oil and natural gas are uh, pure commodities. And so, at least from my perspective, that means their prices are driven uh, pretty much purely by supply and demand. And so let's say we have some supply issues right now that aren't going to be uh, alleviated anytime soon. But let's also say that we're heading towards a recession if we're not already in one. Uh, as I think about that, that would obviously crimp demand. So how do you think about that interplay, right, where you have perhaps still constrained supply, but we may also see demand start to, uh, to wane a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's easier to talk about that in the, in the sense of oil markets because it's, it's kind of more global, whereas U.S. natural gas is this limitations on what can be exported just by capacity. But from you know an oil market perspective, um, there is the potential for more supply constraints as the embargo on Russia comes into place. Um, and, you know, you've seen even OPEC plus countries produce below their quotas. So there's some, some supply constraints for sure in this market. On the demand side, I think a lot depends on what happens with China. Um, and when they start to eventually alleviate some of their COVID policies, you know, that could be a big swing from a demand perspective. Um, Chinese oil demand is expected to fall this year for the first time since 1990, which is just you know, crazy to me. So um, I think the the Chinese demand component is probably underappreciated. Um, and all of these things kind of bear watching. But from the OPEC plus meeting and what we've seen is I think if we do see weakness in demand from recession, OPEC plus is probably going to offset that with cuts. But a rebound in Chinese demand, for example, could be one thing that could help you know, tighten that demand, uh, even if we do see you know, a recession kind of weighing on, on demand globally. So there's a lot of you know, kind of puts and takes and things to watch from from that perspective. And just a couple minutes left here, bringing the conversation back to ETFs. In that scenario, let's say we do get a somewhat nasty recession. You, you know, you talked earlier about how the energy space as a whole is obviously more investable. You offered what I thought were some pretty compelling drivers moving forward. But if we do get that nasty recession, are there certain types of energy ETFs which might hold up uh, better in that situation? Yeah, so the summer was kind of a good example of you know, how does energy perform when everyone's concerned about a recession? Because we saw, you know, energy stocks trade off really hard, you know, starting in June on concerns around a recession. Um, and, you know, what you see is that midstream tends to hold up better. So energy infrastructure companies are more defensive because they're earning fees. They're not as exposed to what's happening with commodity prices. So that can be kind of a safe place to hide in the energy space looking at you know, those ETFs that we talked about earlier, like AMLP, for example, um, and you know, relative uh, other related uh, energy infrastructure ETFs that own both MLPs and corporations. Um, and then, you know, you could also argue that the XLE uh, is also defensive because it's about 45% Exxon and Chevron. So Exxon and Chevron, the integrated majors, they tend to be defensive because of their size, their balance sheets, their dividend track record. They have diversified businesses. 
So if you're also you know, worried about a recession, then you may, for example, want to uh, move some exposure out of XOP or change your, your exposure to oil and gas producers and move it into something like XLE or move it into midstream for a little more of a defensive posture. Well, Stacy, greatly enjoyed the conversation. Really love this addition to the podcast. I, I think our listeners are certainly going to appreciate uh, occasionally uh, drilling into the energy sector, pun intended there. So thank you, and I look forward to having you back on. Thanks so much, Nate. Appreciate it. That was Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. I'm now joined by Alex Morris, President and Chief Investment Officer of FM Investments, who back in August, they launched the first single bond ETF. So everybody was talking about single stock ETFs, but FM rolled out single treasury bond ETFs. These are called the U.S. Benchmark Series, currently three ETFs in all already over $200 million in assets. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, it does look like there are more of these ETFs on the way. Now, FM Investments, they're not just some uh, little upstart ETF issuer. They're actually a $4 billion multi-boutique investment advisor based in Washington, D.C. However, as it turns out, Alex is joining me live and in person today. Alex, it's an absolute pleasure. Welcome to Kansas City. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, although pretty cold. It is. Yeah, it's a nice, crisp uh, fall day. Have you ever visited the City of Fountains before? I have. Uh, one of our affiliates, Integrated Alpha, was based actually right here outside Kansas City. It's now moved out to Lawrence, but I get the pleasure of coming out here about once a quarter. And uh, did I see correctly that you were on CNBC yesterday with Bob Pisani in New York, and then you made a quick turnaround now in Kansas City? I was. Nothing like a 930 to midnight flight. <laughs> and how did everything go uh, with Bob? Oh, it was a lot of fun. Bob's a pro. It was good fun being on there talking about something that you know we thought was just kind of missed, but needs a bit of explanation. A little uh, different than here, but you know, still fun to be in front of all the lights and see how they make TV. All right. So every time that I think the ETF industry has thought of everything, something new comes out that I wasn't uh, expecting, wasn't even on my radar. It never fails. And I'll be honest, I really hadn't considered the idea of single treasury bond ETF. So l let's begin there. Give us the backstory. Where did this idea come from? Well, we agree with you. We thought all the, the good ideas were had and took a long time to accept that this might be, have been one that was just missed. This idea, like most really good ones, came as necessity. We had clients, advisors, uh, friends asking us, oh, what, what happens if in 2022 markets reverse? Where do we go? And the answer has historically been U.S. Treasury market. Negative correlation to U.S. equities, broadly speaking, all equities, yet positive yield. And we all get the J.P. Morgan quarterly charts. They're those blue diamonds in the bottom left. That's the sweet spot uh, when you need a haven. So we thought, all right, well, that, that's the obvious answer. And then some folks actually tried to do it. 
Now we trade bonds all day through other affiliates. We've got all the systems, people, traders. It's second hat. It's old hat to us. But try to do it yourself. Most advisors are used to using tickers. They're used to using rebalancing software. They're used to buying models, implementing models, and working around what are largely an equity or an ETF business. Bonds are a different thing, and treasuries are a different thing on top of that. We all might remember bond math from our Series 7 or Series 65. It's the part everyone feared. It's accrued income. It's accretion. It's all these words that don't make a lot of sense. And then yield and price, they're inverse, but they don't always work out to be what you expect. The cash flows are messy. The whole thing's hard. You can buy them actually from the government. TreasuryDirect.gov is actually the government's website. You can participate in the primary auctions right alongside Goldman Sachs and the other major players in the space. But even that's kind of a mess. It's hard to trade. You have to hold on to it for a long time. So you put all that together and say, wait a second, there's got to be a better way. And we thought, well, for sure, plenty of ETFs have this. But as we searched and searched, we couldn't find one that would give us the point on the curve we wanted. You know, we're a little bit of curve nerds deep down inside. We know lots of advisors and OCIOs are, but we wanted that point on the curve, not a wide bit of the slope. And when the curve starts to move, that slope sweeps a pretty wide area. It locks in some low coupons. It has some other issues. So we thought it was missing. And it took a lot of phone calls to finally realize it actually was missing. Well, it's funny you mentioned purchasing government bonds because I think with the uh, growing popularity of I-bonds, more investors are figuring out that the Treasury Direct uh, website isn't necessarily the most easy thing, most straightforward thing in the world to, uh, to navigate, and there are some, uh, some headaches there. Okay, so the ETFs themselves, uh, th these are branded as equitizing the yield curve, okay? I want to talk about specific construction here. And so maybe you can describe, first of all, what does that mean, equitizing the yield curve, and then get into what these actually hold. How are you getting the exposure specifically in the ETF? Sure. So the yield curve, the thing we all look at and see now inverted or looking somewhat flat, anything two years onwards, you can go out and buy all of the normal nominal bonds from the government or from a secondary dealer. And they trade, as you'd expect, on the market and very liquid. But each of the issuances uh, from the government is issued multiple times. In the case of, say, the two-year for U2 or the 10-year and U10, they come out every month for the two-year, every quarter for the 10-year. So throughout the course of two years, there'll be 24 two-year bonds available at any one point, four times 30, and you can see where this goes. So when you pick one, what you're actually trying to buy or what they've recently issued, we call on the run. And that's ultimately what, what we hold. That's where the greatest amount of liquidity is. And oddly enough... If you do some spread analysis, if you take the two-year and go to what we call the old two-year, which is the not the most recent issue, but the last most recent issue, the spread will widen by about three times the spread that you'd expect to see on the two-year. And that number gets bigger and bigger the further on you go down, you, you fall down the curve. We buy just that, just the on the run. It's a cash bond. There's no derivatives. There's no options. There's no synthetic or academically interesting way we do this. We do the boring thing of just buying the cash bonds and focusing on high-quality execution and high-quality roles. Because we don't want to buy a bond and charge shareholders for the privilege of doing it. So we've worked out mechanisms and, and a broker-dealer network that allows us to buy this at what would be a, far, a price far below, or far better, I should say, than what most investors would get. And I, I want to be clear here just with the terminology. When you say on the run, that refers to the most recently issued treasury security that corresponds to the stated tenor. Correct. Okay. Um, is there any risk in these ETFs of what I'll call negative roll, where once the bonds go off the run, as you were just describing, 
they might sell at a slight discount because there's less liquidity. And you think about a rising rate environment, obviously the newly issued bonds uh, are going to offer a higher coupon. And so the ETF is in a situation where it has to sell low and buy high. Is that an issue at all with these ETFs? So the, the negative role issue, I'd break into those two sections. There's the what happens when the coupon changes, and, and we can't change that, right? That coupon was set by the government, and we do ultimately think most folks want that higher coupon, so we will make the role in the trade into that. But then there's the actual mechanism execution of the role, as you point out. Can we be in a spot where liquidity of the old and the new is sufficiently different that we lose some sort of slippage in that trade? And the answer for us thus far has been no. There is a liquidity difference indeed. But the, the Treasury market is so old and so deep, there's an entire series of players who all they do is work one, two, three generations off the run. So there's wide levels of liquidity, and we'd have to get to a, a lot of zeros, uh, enough zeros that probably too hard to explain to, to even think about right now before that would become a major issue for us. By the way, one thing that I think is important to note, and you were alluding to this earlier, I, I alluded to it at the top, these ETFs. Uh, are different than single stock ETFs. These really shouldn't be lumped together, but I I've actually seen some in the media uh, attempting to do that, right? Where they'll write a piece on single stock ETFs and they'll lump in these single treasury bond ETFs as well. Do you want to comment on that at all? Just because I do think it's important from an investor perspective to understand these are not the same. Yeah, I think if uh, listeners were here, they'd see me seething. Um, <laughs> don't get me wrong, we appreciate all of the, the media and the press, and a lot of folks have gotten this the first time out, but they are. Are quite different than single bond, single stock ETFs. We buy a single bond. That's it. There's no derivative. There's no high fees. These are 15 basis points. We can often help reduce some of that fee through some, you know, very reasonable and very safe securities lending pr um, practices. But unlike, say, someone who's going to go triple X long Tesla or minus one Tesla, there's no swap. There's no leverage. There's no embedded fees. There's none of that. We buy the cash bond at about half the face value that a usual person could buy it at. And since we buy at scale and we trade in scale, we get superlative, I shouldn't say superlative, but we get very good and very competitive pricing, certainly much better than what most folks would even see advertised to them on an advisory platform. And by the way, for listeners, I should have mentioned this earlier. So the three ETFs, just to be clear here, the U.S. Treasury 10-year note ETF, ticker symbol U10, U-T-E-N. There's the U.S. Treasury two-year note ETF, ticker U2, U-T-W-O, and then the U.S. Treasury three-month bill ETF, ticker T-bill. By the way, great ticker symbols on all of those. I'm, I'm impressed. I appreciate it. We submitted a list to uh, NASDAQ, who's our, our listing uh, exchange, of what we wanted. And we've got some to fill in the middle. So we've got O-bill, X-bill, U-tray for the three-year, <laughs> U5, U7, and so on and so forth. And we thought... Well, we might as well ask. If you don't ask the dumb question, you don't get a simple answer. And we were shocked when they were all available. Uh, we also reserve for a future product that we're incubating, RFR, the risk-free rate. And I very much wanted to use that out, out of the gate. But when only the, the nerdy folks like me found that interesting, marketing quickly killed that off. <laughs> all right, Alex. So I think for many investors out there, they look at something like U10, uh, your 10-year note ETF, and they say, okay, uh, I get the potential benefits versus owning individual treasury bonds. I thought you did a good job of, of describing that earlier. But how is this different from something like the iShare 7 to 10-year treasury bond ETF, ticker IEF, or even a target maturity ETF? So there's something like the iShares December 2031 term treasury ETF, ticker IBTL. Take us through that because I think those types of products 
are ultimately what investors and advisors are going to compare you to from a, a due diligence perspective. No, and we've we've had those types of questions, and we think that's the right one to ask. So versus, say, a multi-bond ETF, we buy one thing, they buy many. So they might hold 100 bonds, but most of those bonds, of, of what's in that package is an index, similar to us. We have an index of one thing, though. And those will have all of the characteristics of everything they bought or everything that index has purchased. So today, if you're looking at the higher coupon of the 10-year versus, say, six months ago or 12 months ago, most of the bonds in that uh, ETF will have locked in a lower coupon. And they'll have to lock in a lower coupon for a period of time because that's just the way the index was constructed. And these indices, as you might imagine, are pretty old. And it's because the Treasury is pretty old and we've been issuing bonds for a very long time. The indices largely follow how and when the government issues money. That's not inherently an investment decision. That's a government spending decision. So if you look at some of the longer bond funds, you know, beyond IEF into TLT and some of the true long bond strategies, they'll hold a, a very back-end weighted portfolio. Not a, Again, not an investment decision. That was a the government had a lot of stimulus checks they wrote, and they need to borrow a lot of money to make good on them. So those, they will have all the characteristics, and they'll have a lagging effect. So if you want the current coupon, you want something similar to us. If you want a more uh, structured ladder, understanding that you're going to have a lower coupon and that some of those bonds are harder to trade, so the liquidity on them is lower, and therefore the price you have to pay is greater than what you might actually expect on a yield basis, you, you make that trade. For us versus, say, buying a target fund bond, target bond fund, that has a known horizon. If you hold on to that by... Uh, 2032, it'll end. Ours has the infinite time horizon. We constantly stay on that on the run, which is the most liquid. It's where the you know, large uh, treasuries, large insurance, large risk management firms are constantly operating. So if you chose a point on the curve that you wanted, I want to target X duration or X maturity, we would keep you there. And you can now mix and match our funds to recreate what some of these other strategies have done. But if you look at a multi-bond fund, its characteristics will change over time. They just inherently will move towards one or side if there's a lump in the uh, index of a large holding, and you can work around that. But that's a lot of extra work. For folks who say, this is where I want to be, this is the risk tolerance I want, this is the coupon I want base current, you can hold us and we will keep you right at that spot indefinitely. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if I were to summarize that, do, do you consider these more surgical or more precise exposure at the end of the day? Is that how you would describe these? Absolutely. Some of the larger funds with lots of holdings, more of a sledgehammer, we're more of a scalpel. Okay. Let, let's do this. With our remaining time, uh, I, I'd love to just get your thoughts on the broader fixed income markets. And just because listeners will be familiar with these ETFs, I want to give you a few uh, year-to-date returns, and, and they're not pretty. So broad bonds, something like the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, B&D, that's down over 15%. Uh, the aforementioned IEF, that's down over 16%. TLT, the iShares 20-plus-year Treasury ETF, listen to this, down 32% year-to-date. What's been your take on the uh, carnage we've seen in the fixed-income markets this year? Yeah, I mean, we've had to install seatbelts on all the chairs on the trading desk. <laughs> it, it just feels like it's one of those years. Uh, it, this has been the worst year for the 60-40 portfolio on, on record, or at least certainly recent memory. But I think we forget about it takes us about 10 years to forget these sorts of things happen about once every 10 years. This year, perhaps more pronounced than others. But, you know, last 2020 was a, a very strange year personally for everybody, but in the markets and some very wacky things happened. So I think we kind of knew that it needed to be some retrenchment. This certainly has been worse than we might expect. 
But we haven't seen some of the same systemic credit and other issues, at least not yet, that have certainly happened the last time around here. Banks are shockingly well capitalized, almost scary healthy. So the the major infrastructure and critical items are still holding together quite well. Proof that we may have learned something from the last time. Right? We we constantly forget that we're always forgetting, right? But this time I think we learned something. The Fed's been proactive to many respects, uh, perhaps a little late and a lot of critiques always thrown at them, but I appreciate they've got a really hard job for what they're trying to do. And now their one tool to raise rates also seems to be trying to almost actively destroy employment, which feels against their mandate of maximal employment. But it's a balancing act. They've, they've been a little late to act in, in many respects, but now I think they're they're trying their best to not put us into a tremendous recession, even though this is a pretty extraordinary and certainly historic record rate of which rates have gone up. And obviously not the highs of the 80s, but the speed at which we're getting there and the speed of which they've committed to stay there. Add in some other geopolitical factors that we haven't worried about since the 60s, and there you go, minus 30. Okay, so with that backdrop and with a caveat that nobody has a crystal ball, which, which by the way, everybody knows that mine is broken. My crystal ball is completely shattered. Give me your best guess on how everything plays out moving forward, uh, whether in the treasury market or if you just want to talk broader fixed income. What are you watching for here? Uh, well, I never got a crystal ball, so you're one step ahead of me, <laughs> uh, much less to be broken. I think the treasury market probably has a little more room uh, to run here. Rates are going to continue to go up. The Fed's made that pretty clear. Uh, as you mentioned, as we're talking with Bob, uh, Bob Sonny mentioned on uh, Josh Brown's show, the VIX was trading at 32, which if you divide by 16, that means the markets, the, the equity markets are timing in a 30-day horizon of, of 2% moves. And there are really three events driving that. We were CPI, which we, we knew, Fed rates, which we've kind of, we now know what they're going to do in the election. That's a big move. And, and I credit Bob for all of all of those stats. But I look on the, the other side of the house, all right, we know 75 basis points is coming. That's going to mean higher coupons. That's going to mean a little more uh, route in the bond market. But until earnings are terrible, until the companies that took out this, these debts can't actually pay them back, things are going to kind of carry on. And it's mostly a sentiment trade. And I'm generally not accused of being an optimist, although I actually am, perhaps just a cynical one. I do think there's a, a fair bit of good of things to be excited about. It's just going to take that sentiment turning to allow it to happen. And we see it in these little fits and starts, right? The equity markets had a great day yesterday, you know, green today. But we're going to need everyone to take that collective gasp, sit down. Maybe it's the end of the year where everyone takes a few days off and then come back and say, OK, we can get back on to doing what we're doing. Well, Alex, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. I've got to tell you, I always love having these conversations uh, in person. Just so much fun. Enjoy the rest of your stay in uh, Kansas City. And best of luck to you on the ETF lineup moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. That was Alex Morris, President and Chief Investment Officer of FM Investments. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Yeah.
I'm now joined by Mark Newman, founder and chief investment officer of Constrained Capital. He's behind the ESG Orphans ETF, ticker ORFN, O-R-F-N. This just launched back in May, and Mark is now on the line with me from Atlanta. Mark, so great to finally have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nate. Really happy to be here. Okay, so so let's start with some background here. And just based on the previous conversations you and I have had offline, my guess is it's really not going to take much to get you going here. So why did you uh, launch an ESG Orphans ETF? So I... I'm a student of the market. I've always done a lot of deep dive investigative work. And I came across an article written by hedge fund legend Cliff Asnes entitled Virtue is Its Own Reward. And in this, his conclusion was an ancillary consequence of ESG investing is lower returns. Basically, he discussed constraints on capital resulting in misallocation of funds and general malinvestment. And he concluded that the Excluded stocks, the isolated stocks, have generally higher expected returns. And he mentioned sin stocks and tobacco. And I did a real deep dive and found a period in the past 25 years of constraints on capital with pension funds selling after a litigation. Then I found a period where they had divested. And uh, then I found in 2017 when the ESG bubble expanded heavily, uh, there were constraints again. And in those periods, the stocks behaved the tobacco stocks behaved as Cliff had suggested. Along this process, I was doing a ton of work, and uh, I read an article by um, a, a legend in academia, Aswath Damodaran, the dean of valuation, who'd always been an ESG skeptic, and his conclusions were that ESG has costs and will always result in lower returns, and there were a lot of false promises, uh, sort of failed fiduciary duty, and sort of my CFA charter holder fiduciary moral compass sort of went crazy when I did all this discovery. And that's what led me to create this product to help uh, investors, you know, capitalize on a basket of uh, high expected return securities that comprise my ESG orphans. And Mark, just to dive a little bit deeper on that, can you explain the rationale behind why ESG would ultimately lead to lower returns and, and what happens if you're constraining an investment universe. I think that'll be helpful for listeners to really understand the uh, the ultimate investment thesis behind the ETF itself. Sure, sure. Everything has a cost. Consider organic food versus regular food. Organic food just costs more. And you're never going to find organic food at a lower price than regular food. If you want to buy organic food, that's totally fine. But you're going to pay more for it. And as I was talking to the professor, uh, Professor Damodaran recently, you can't have cake with no calories. There's a false emptiness in saying you can do good and be good and get the same or better returns. That's just not accurate. And then part of Cliff Asnes' determination was, you know, constraints are what you are what happened when you do something you don't want to do. And basically, the idea is, you can't get something for nothing. And I think that's the general gist of ESG investing. And, you know, one of the struggles I had was the false promises that big institutions are making to people saying it's costless to be virtuous. It just isn't. I mean, that's why people fast and that's why people, you know, do religious things because it's painful and you have to accept that as a cost of being good. There's a cost to being virtuous. 
Okay, so let's do this. Let's get into the ETF, and then we can certainly come back around to ESG investing overall. So the ESG Orphans ETF, just walk us through exactly how this is constructed. Right. So I found those six sectors that were excluded from ESG investing, fossil fuel, nuclear energy, weapons, alcohol, tobacco, and gambling. Let's call those three vital industries, fossil fuel, nuclear energy, and weapons, and three classic old sin industries, if you will. The index is comprised of 50 holdings, market cap weighted. It's a rules-based ETF and index. And I chose the biggest names in each of the sectors because I didn't want to make it a stock pickers ETF. It was a theme sector-based where I isolated the ESG factor. In other words, these were the basket of excluded. And it's diverse in that it's across all the sectors. And some of the rules, just for, for, for the listeners, is no sector can be more than 25%. And no single stock can be more than 10%. I wanted it to be balanced. And basically, each of those sectors, and we can get into some of those and talk specifically maybe, they sort of have their own return profiles. Obviously, alcohol and tobacco have inelastic goods component to them. They have generally lower beta. They have good cash flows. And they provide a sort of unique um, risk return profile compared to, you know, fossil fuel and nuclear energy and, and weapons, which these days are really more vital and, you know, imperative to the way things are moving in society. And, uh, you know, I think that we will need those three weapons, fossil fuel and nuclear energy going forward in the outlook for, for the macro environment. And so just broadly speaking here, so those six sectors, again, fossil fuels, weapons, nuclear, tobacco, alcohol and, and gambling. What, what you're suggesting is um, these are sectors that are excluded by ESG funds uh, in, in ESG investing mandates as a whole. But if investors aren't going to own those uh, or ESG investors aren't going to own those, somebody still has to. Right. Everything has to be owned by someone. And so in order to incentivize people to invest in those stocks, they have to be induced by getting a, a higher expected return than uh, otherwise. Is that a fair characterization? I mean, is that ultimately the high level investment thesis? Yes. In the end, people have to be paid a higher expected return to own the stocks that nobody else wants to own, the castaways, the orphans. And, you know, because they've been excluded, the flow of funds, especially over the last decade, has seen an explosion in sectors like technology and healthcare. And what we've seen on the other side is a major drawdown in energy and materials and utilities and these industrials, which again, I conclude sort of the, the, the weapons in there, they've seen a general shrinkage as a weight in the S&P. So this has gone on for a full decade where ESG has exploded and money's been shepherded, been herded into these big sectors, technology, healthcare, and they've been excluded and shunned. So someone has been seeing flows away from these orphans. And it sort of makes them depressed security, so to speak. And to own those, you need to be incentivized, which comes through in lower prices, which in the end provides greater expected returns over time. If we put aside that particular notion, just the potential for, for higher expected returns because these are SIN stocks, I'm curious, as you look across the six sectors held in this ETF, what are some possible 
uh, bullish developments that jump out to you? Maybe you can highlight a, a couple of sectors. Like, what, what are some specific catalysts within these sure. sectors? Sure, sure. So let's talk about weapons. And by no means am I a warmonger. That is not my incentive or my intention at all. I'm just a CFA charter holder trying to find opportunistic situations, irrespective of sort of social and political pressures. The taxonomy change that has been evolving in the weapons sector is really something to behold. When Russia invaded the Ukraine, there was talk in the EU of changing classification for these weapons. Like, uh, it's very nuanced. So let's say selling the U.S. sends aid to Ukraine. Ukraine turns around and buys battery uh, systems from Raytheon. So I guess that's somewhat acceptable in the ESG world or the investing world because it's helping you, the Ukraine. And for example, China versus China and the Taiwan situation. When we have politicians on both sides of the aisle agreeing on the outlook for China and Taiwan in terms of defense, it becomes very apolitical. And it becomes a matter of this is vital. And I think as the ESG, in general, I think as the ESG veil gets lifted and there's pushback, and we're starting to see that with uh, some of the pension funds dismissing ESG criteria as investing mandates because it hampers returns. And there are fiduciary concerns, right? Because if you're not investing investors' dollars where they get the greatest potential return, you're not really doing that fiduciary responsible responsible role and you can see blackrock is sort of under the gun here from attorneys generals and basically you know if you focus on other things outside of returns there's a little fiduciary slippage and i think that i don't want to get too political but the political winds definitely have some pushback here and as things evolve I always believe in sort of revert to the mean and reversion. We're starting to see a shift where, look, a bit of the bear market is saying to people, I need to focus on returns. I don't have enough, uh, you know, I don't have enough luxury, if you will, to focus on other issues, social, political, environmental to some degree, versus I need to maximize returns and preserve my capital. So I think these are some of the tailwinds you could see going forward. Mark, just a few minutes left here. Uh, again, I think it's clear you have some very passionate views towards uh, ESG funds overall. Putting aside that this whole return uh, debate, what in particular would you highlight with these products? Like, what are some of the things that give you pause as you look at, say, ESG ETFs? Well, greenwashing has been a very big thing of late. This is where investors, prom- uh, investors are promised ESG type results, and yet the funds are not really practicing the concepts to get into heavily into ESG. They're more just sort of making it sound good, sounding good versus doing good. And, you know, over the years, the assets under management in ESG have exploded into the multi, multi trillions. And now the fees and the revenues collected from ESG funds are in the billions. So there's a lot of people wanting to keep that cottage industry, that golden goose going. And I think that that's causing sort of a continuation. They're changing the name towards 
sustainability and impact. And I was speaking uh, again to, to Professor Damadaran quite recently, and you know he said that the minute BlackRock and those other big asset managers admit that ESG has costs and will lower returns, current ESG investing as we know it comes to a bit of a standstill because in the end it's sort of a failed fiduciary responsibility. You know, as again, as a CFA charter holder, my fiduciary moral compass went crazy when I discovered the failed objectives, the higher fees, the lower returns, and worst of all, the big risks involved in the markets now from a macro side, energy and security, and from a micro side, everyone owns the same big tech stocks in the S&P and the NASDAQ and in all these ESG funds. So I think there's a buildup of risk that we're seeing, which is where I you know, highlight my excluded basket of stocks, the ESG orphans, as nobody really owns these. So it's a case of if you, you know, investing with the herd or investing with the contrarian idea that these excluded stocks really assuage the risk in the markets currently because it helps to provide a balance and a place to invest where very few are. And you're away from the crowd and you're away, to be honest, from the misleading ruse that shepherded everyone's money into into the ESG funds. Well, Mark, with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Such an interesting topic. Uh, Always love talking ESG. So great to finally connect. I wish you the best of luck on the uh, ETF. And thank you for joining me this week. Thanks for having me, Nate. Appreciate it. That was Mark Newman, founder and chief investment officer of Constrained Capital. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Capital Group. If you would like to learn more about Capital Group's ETFs, you can visit capitalgroup.com slash ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by Kelsey Mulray, who is president of Motley Fool Asset Management. She's going to explain why they converted several mutual funds to ETFs, which if you look at their ETF lineup now, well over a billion dollars in assets. That might surprise some people. And then Will Rind, founder and CEO of Granite Shares, will go in-depth on single-stock ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Growth and innovation, two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the certified ETF advisor designation by visiting CETF.org.